O Yahweh, our Adonai, indeed how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your majesty is on display everywhere. The heavens declare your glory. Help us, O Lord, this morning to see something of your majesty more clearly, that we might gaze upon it and shout your majesty over the rooftops. I pray for those this morning who've never seen your majesty. I pray that you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and even taste buds to taste. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago on the campus of Harvard University, Emerson Hall was in the process of being constructed. The architect's plan included an inscription that was to be chiseled in marble over the main entrance. After much thought, the professors of the Department of Philosophy decided that they wanted inscribed on this marble, quote, man is the measure of all things. But such a man-centered worldview did not meet the approval of the president at that time. When the professors returned over summer after summer vacation, they found the building complete, <clears throat> but cut into the marble was this engravement. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Psalm 8.4 Although man continues to have a very inflated view of himself and sadly the way of Harvard College has been the way of those philosophy professors rather than the president of the institution. Nonetheless, when we open up the scriptures, we see the God of the Bible is a God who is majestic. His name is majestic. And His name, His majestic name fills all the earth and demands our response. This is a psalm that was written by David. Notice how the psalm begins with the superscript for the choir director on the Giddith, a psalm of David. Now, the Giddith, we have no idea what the Giddith was. Maybe it was an instrument that David kept telling his sons, go Giddith me that thing over there. And they called it the Giddith. I don't know. Uh, It was evidently probably some kind of instrument. But it's written by David. And uh, remember David's early occupation in life was one of shepherding. And I could just imagine David looking up into the skies and seeing the vast expanse of of the stars and, and even on occasion the planets and writing a psalm like this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Of course, we don't know exactly what the setting of this psalm was, but certainly we can imagine that. And I want to take away four imperatives from this psalm. And all of them require us to gaze upon God, okay? To gaze upon God's majesty. So first, we're going to gaze upon God's majesty displayed in the creation. Look at verse 1. O Yahweh, our Lord... How majestic is your name in all the earth. And you notice this is how the psalm ends in verse 9. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here is a call, a cry of David as he writes this. O Yahweh, this is God's proper name. It is the way in which God revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush. Now, our Lord is more of a title. Our Adonai, O Yahweh, is a a proper name. So this would be something like this. uh, O Matt Mager, our pastor. Or O Joe Biden, our president. Fill in the blank. (laughs) There's the proper name, 
And then there's the title. And, and this is the idea here. Oh, Yahweh. Yahweh is God's proper name. It was His unique name. The other gods that surrounded ancient Israel were not called Yahweh. They may have been called Elohim. It's more of a generic name for God. They may have been addressed as Adonai, which is a title, but they did not have this specific proper name of God that He had revealed Himself to His people. We see God reveal Himself in such a way to Moses at the burning bush. You remember the occasion? We read it this morning in Sunday school in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses sees this bush that's on fire but it's not being consumed and and God is calling Moses to be the instrument to deliver His people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt. And he quite naturally asks God, what do you want me to call you? Whom do I say has sent me? And God says to Moses, tell them that I am has sent you. I am that I am. And then he says in Exodus 3.15, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. God revealed Himself in this peculiar way as the I Am, as Yahweh, the One who is self-existing. And this is also very countercultural for the ancient world. Many of the pagan religions that surrounded Israel, in order to uh, get to know the name of that God, it was, it was kind of like a, a secret society, almost like a, something like a, a, a Masonic cult where only special people were revealed that special name of their God. In fact, Gerald Wilson in his commentary says, in the ancient world in which Israel lived, the name of God was often closely guarded, a closely guarded secret employed in the deepest, most intimate recesses of the worship system. The name of God provided access to the deity, incorporated into the incantations and rituals. The name could command God's presence and force action. Yahweh's name was given to His people freely. And with that gift came open access to Him. God's name is given freely, and not only that, we see His majestic name is spread through all the earth. Notice this name, it is called majestic. Majestic means impressive, almost intimidating. This is highlighting God's impressive name is stamped over all of His creation. It reminds us of Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament the work of His hands. Day after day pours forth speech. Night after night reveals knowledge. God is speaking constantly through the creation, screaming out, My name is majestic. My name is powerful. My name is splendid. My name is impressive. It's there in all the earth put on display. Sometimes it's difficult for us to see the impressiveness of God's name spelled out in creation. Sometimes we just need to unplug, right? Put our cell phones on silence. Hit that little do not disturb feature. Maybe take a walk in the park. Maybe go outside on a clear evening and look at the skies and sit in wonder at God. Or maybe to go to the beach and to gaze upon a large body of water and to see the shining sun and to be able to respond in your heart, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name. Sometimes we get so fixated upon what's going on immediately in front of us that we miss the big picture. And David didn't know many of the things that we know 
about the majesty of God in creation. The earth travels around the sun at approximately 67,000 miles per hour. We're flying around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. That's approximately 19 miles per second. You can go from here to Cleveland in three seconds. And amazingly, wonder of wonders, it doesn't feel like that. We're not all trying to hang on, you know, our hair's blowing back. The Milky Way galaxy. We're at the size of the entire continent of North America. Our solar system would fit into a cup of coffee. That's how vast just the Milky Way galaxy is. Let alone all the different galaxies out there. And all of it screams out God's glory. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our hearts ought to bow and worship as this great God. Whether it's the minutia of looking at a small plant in our garden, or as we'll see before here long, the changing colors of the leaves, or seeing the powerful sun in the sky, our hearts should respond by shouting the majesty of God's name. There's a story that G. Campbell Morgan tells when he was a little boy of a man who in his older years had been converted. <clears throat> and he saw him one day in his, in his garden with tears streaming down his face. And as the boy got closer and looked at at what the man was holding, he was holding a leaf. And the man just kept saying, how great God is. This man, his eyes had been opened to the glory and wonder of the God of creation. But not only to gaze upon God's majesty displayed in all creation, but to gaze upon God's majesty displayed in children. Look at verse 2. The psalm takes an interesting turn. It says, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Very interesting. God now turns from from Himself being on display in all creation for the camera to now focus on little babies. Goo goo gaga. (laughs) And to say that these infants and nursing babes have established strength. Or as the New Testament writers quoting from the Greek translation that have ordained praise. God's strength is established even through little children. Now what's fascinating here is, is this theme that runs through the Scriptures that God often puts His majesty on display through weakness. Through the seemingly insignificant. I mean, we see this theme all throughout the Scripture. Remember, uh, I mentioned Moses in, in Exodus. As God's great plan of redemption is marching forth, the camera at the beginning of the book of Exodus focuses in on a little baby, right? This little baby whose life is in danger. This little weak baby whom God is going to use to deliver His people out of Egypt and to bring the most mighty nation on planet earth to its knees. He does it through a little baby. We see this in the book of Judges. We see as the oppression of the Philistines 
the neighbors of the Israelites is coming down heavy upon them. In, in Judges chapter 13, the camera focuses on a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, and they're, be to, they're told that they're going to have a baby. And of course, this baby's name will be Samson. And God will use this baby, this seemingly weak, insignificant child, to crush single-handedly the Philistines. We see this even in the opening pages on the tail end of the period of the Judges, the opening pages of Samuel, right? As there's the, the, the woman there, Hannah, experiencing the weakness of infertility and she's crying out to God to give her a baby and God grants her that request and gives her little baby Shamael, Samuel. And God uses that little baby as a great instrument in His hand in Israel. And of course, fast forward to the New Testament, another nativity scene. And you know the story of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and, and the angels coming to Joseph and Mary and telling them that a child will be born to them. And God will use this little baby in the midst of weakness to crush His enemies, to bring forth deliverance and salvation. This is always God's method to use that which is weak to display His strength. To put Himself on display. Because, you see, when it's through the means of weakness, nobody looks at the situation and says, wow, look how strong that baby is. But they say, no, look how great God is. It's the same reason why we see, again, even earlier in the book of Judges with Gideon, God's whittling down the numbers. Why? So that He can put Himself on display. Now friends, this is, this is actually very important in our time period. Because one of the great seductions of the evangelical world is we need to be strong and mighty. If we're going to get things done, we need burgeoning churches with thousands of people in them. But you see, God is always delighted to use the weak, the small. Now, I'm not saying we should, you know, delight in having a church with only five people in it or something like that. But my point is, is that sometimes we miss God's point. He starts with 12 disciples. <laughs> 12 ragtag guys. Former tax collector, former terrorists, fishermen, just, in the words of Steve Miller, ordinary average guys. Seemingly insignificant. And God uses that ragtag group of people to turn the world upside down. I mean, think about it. Those twelve, and now we see the amazing influence of Christianity has had on the entire globe. Everywhere. God often is delighted to work through weakness. There's a story of the Southern General Stonewall Jackson where tragically and sadly his wife gives birth to their child as a stillborn and she winds up hemorrhaging and dying. So in one day he loses both his child and his wife. The next day, he writes to his sister, Laura. He told her that he thought he could submit to anything if God strengthened him for it. But he made no attempt to cover up his sadness and despair. And then there, in the middle of this letter, there is one of the most moving one-liners. 
he says to his sister in the midst of his pain and grief of having just lost his wife and child, he says, Oh, my sister, that you could have him for your own God. He's appealing to his sister to turn to this God. To turn to this God who in His sovereignty had just taken away His wife and His daughter. And I can't help but think that this mighty general who could display tremendous strength and courage on the battlefield put God's strength most on display in the midst of his tears and weakness summoned his sister to turn to this God. Of course, this is a passage that we find in the New Testament. In verse 2, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. Perhaps you remember Jesus' citation of this. In Matthew 21, verse 15 and 16, it says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant. So this is at the triumphal entry where where people are chanting, Hosanna! Hosanna! They're ascribing Jesus as the Messiah and the religious leaders are ticked off by this. Poisoning these children with their doctrine. They say in verse 16, Do you hear what these children are saying? And then Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, here comes from Psalm 8, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. He's quoting from Psalm 2, or Psalm 8, verse 2, From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have ordained strength or established strength or prepared praise. What's fascinating here is Jesus is saying, didn't you read the Bible where God uses infants to praise God? He's essentially saying, I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. And I will receive the praise. In fact, he mentions in this same context that that if they don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. This is God's way. This This is why His great salvation comes through weakness. Remember that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where He says, not many wise, not many noble, And he says in chapter 1 and verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. God delights to use weakness to highlight His strength. why the great act of the new exodus is the Lord Jesus hanging on a Roman cross. Could there be any more tangible expression of weakness than a person gasping for their last breath publicly humiliated on a Roman cross and yet God was doing that to execute His great plan of salvation. Oh Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. So friend, this morning gaze upon God's majesty, His majestic name put on display not only in all creation, but also in children through weakness. 
But third, gaze upon God's majesty displayed in care. In care for humanity. Notice verse 3. He's going to go back to God's majesty put on display in all creation. Then he's going to zero in on his special creation. Verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained. Notice here the personal pronouns. Your heavens. The work of your fingers. Very very graphic imagery. Like, like God's creation. His, his fingers molding the creation. When I consider these things, the moon, the stars which you have ordained. The psalmist now looks to the vastness of God's grandiose creation. And then he says in verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? What the psalmist is pondering here is, I see the vastness of your creation, the sun, the moon. I look up in the heavens in wonder and awe at your power. And then I sit and wonder that you care for us little peons. That you would be concerned about us. We're not big. We're not great. We're not enormous like the heavenly bodies. And yet this is the great wonder. You see, this is the amazing thing. And again, this is very countercultural because the prophets of this day would tell you that human beings are intruders on planet Earth. And you need to minimize your carbon footprint and stop screwing up this planet. Mother Earth is not happy with you. Okay? But you see, (laughs) wonder of wonders, God actually has created all of this, including the cosmos, for the good of creatures. I mean, have you ever wondered at the reality that planet Earth is exactly the right distance to the sun that it needs to be? So that if we were a little bit further, we would all be popsicles. And if we were a little bit closer, we would all be fried bacon. Have you ever pondered the reality that this atmosphere that blankets planet Earth is an amazing thing that cushions this earth and makes the temperature of planet earth relatively stable so that when the earth spins on its axis and we're on the dark side of the sun, we don't all freeze to death? Or the amazing irrigation system that the atmosphere is that somehow, wonder of wonders, it's a, it pulls water, moisture from the air and drops it over the vegetation on earth to feed the plants and the animals so that we could have food to eat. God has summoned all of creation for the good of His most special creation. Human beings made in His image. He's given us the resources on this earth not to destroy, not to use and abuse the creation that He's given us. That would be wrong as well. But to use for our enjoyment so that our hearts would scream, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is Your name. Did you know that planet Earth, there is a light frequency because of our distance to the sun that we are the only planet that you can see the rest of the skies from this planet. In other words, if we were on Venus, if we were on any of these other planets, we wouldn't be able to see the heavens only on planet Earth. In other words, God wants a window for us to see His finger work so that our hearts would cry out. Verse 4, What is man that you take thought of him? What is man that you care for him? 
Imagine you're looking at a globe of planet Earth. Imagine the latest estimates are that there are upwards 8 billion people on planet Earth. You look at North America, it's just a small portion of the globe. Then you look at the state of Ohio, it's just a smaller fraction of those 50 states. Then you, if the, if the globe is big enough, you can point little teeny Youngstown there. And you wonder that the earth is just one planet and one galaxy and that there are millions upon millions of galaxies. And then you ponder that God has the hairs of your head numbered. He cares for you. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you take thought of him, that you remember him, or the son of man? And, and, and it's interesting here, he uses two different words for man. The second word, son of man, ben, which means son, Adam, the sons of Adam. And this becomes significant because what he's going to say in the following verses in highlighting humanity is the image bearer, crown of God's creation. God takes thought of us. He cares for us. This should cause us to wonder that God would care for us. You know, sometimes we, if some really important person or popular person shows us some attention, you know, we kind of freak out, right? I remember years ago, my future wifey. Sorry, I didn't ask her permission to share the story, but I'm going to share it anyways. It's too late now. <clears throat> uh, she was uh, seeking the Lord. She was coming out of Roman Catholicism. And, uh, and she uh, started attending Grace Community Church. If you know anything about Grace Community Church, John MacArthur is a preaching pastor there. Thousands of members of this church. I mean, he's written over a hundred books. I mean, probably into the billions of sermon downloads. So he's a pretty prominent preacher. And uh, after the service, uh, she wanted to ask him a question. She wanted to ask him about confession. Again, coming out of Roman Catholicism where you confess to a priest and there's a long line of people waiting to talk with him. And... Uh, Went through that line. Finally, it was her turn to ask him some questions about confession. And, and she was just so amazed that he took the time to spend a lengthy amount of time explaining uh, what it means biblically to confess your sins. And he could tell that she was anxious. He held her hand the whole time. And, and uh, eventually the conversation was over and there was more people behind her. And so Bernie went off to be with her friends and they were sitting close by and and after John MacArthur got through the line of people he he got his wife and he came over to Bernie and said hey Bernie I want to introduce you to my wife Patricia and of course all of Bernie's friends were like wow you're on a first name basis with John MacArthur <laughs> The point being is, is, is again, sometimes we're amazed that, that, that a person of, of prominence, prominence would, would take interest in someone. And yet the God of the universe, He's taken an interest in you. He cares for you. He knows what's going on in your family life. He knows what's going on with you in the workplace. He knows what's going on in your marriage. He knows what's going on uh, with your parenting and your children. And He cares about it. He's concerned about it. He knows all the details. And He cares for you. This is the God of the Bible. Amidst all that he has going on, he has a lot going on. <coughs> he cares for you. And friends, this is very important in a very cold and indifferent world. We live in a world where oftentimes parents don't even care for their own children. 
We live in a world where oftentimes spouses break their marital vows, abandon their wife, husband, children. We live in a world where so often the governments just use their constituents in their quest and thirst for more power. And you're just a number. And there's a temptation sometimes people who go down this line of thinking and see the despair of this world to, to think, nobody cares about me. If I ended my own life, nobody would even give a rip. But I want to tell you today that God in heaven cares about you. He's concerned about you. He knows your whole situation. And He wants you for Himself. He wants you to know Him. He wants your heart to be able to scream out and say, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name. First Peter 5, 7, 6 and 7 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. Casting all your anxieties, all your concerns, all your burdens, you can cast them upon Him because He cares. He's got them covered. He knows the situation. He cares for you. 1 John 3.1 Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Those who are Ben-Adam, sons of Adam, can become, dare I say it, sons and daughters of God. Adopted into His family. Covered with the blood of the Lamb. Forgiven of all their rebellions. And brought into His family. Friend, do you know that kind of care from God? In fact, I would say that there is a direct proportion to the health and vitality of your Christian life to how much you view God as a loving Father. The more you understand God as a loving Father, the more healthy and thriving you will be. Just like a child. A child who doesn't know their parents love them. It's a hard environment to grow and to thrive in. But a child who is nurtured and cared for and loved, they thrive. They flourish. Friend, do you know of God's love and care for you this morning? If you don't go to Christ, the greater Son, turn to Him and His saving work on the cross. Trust only in Jesus and His death and resurrection. You'll be welcomed into the family. 1 John 1.12 Yet to all who received Him, to those who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. But not only gaze upon God's majestic name in all creation, gaze upon God's majestic name and working through children in the midst of weakness, gaze upon God's majestic name and that He cares for His special creation, humans. Gaze upon God's majesty displayed in the crown of His creation. Notice verse 7 and 8 here. Well, it starts in verse 5. Verse 5 says, You have made him a little lower than God. Some of your translations may say even say the angels. It is Elohim here, but probably the idea is of, of the, the divine creatures. You've made him a little lower than the angelic realm. And crown, you crown him with glory and majesty. 
You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. This is shocking here, right? Especially if you've tracked in our circles very long, we have a very low view of humanity. We believe in total depravity, right? That every aspect of man's humanity is tainted by sin. But you read this passage and it, it, it almost seems to exalt man. You've, you've crowned him with glory and majesty. And you see, friends, get this. Christianity is the only belief system, the only worldview that can account both for the majesty of man and the misery of man. Do you get that? Only Christianity can account for the majesty of man and the misery of man. Man is crowned with glory. I mean, think of the innovation of humanity. Think of technology and all the advances that are able to be made. We can fly into outer space. God has made man in His image. And part of that image, in this, this language should be familiar here, when He says in verse 6, you, have made, you make Him to rule over the, all the works of your hands. You put all things under His feet. That should harken back to Genesis chapter 1, right? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image... According to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air uh, and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. When God made man in His image, He gave him dominion, kingship, rulership over the creation to subdue the creation. Man was God's crowning creation. We, you, you read through the, the different days of creation and it culminates on day six when God makes man. There's a reason why you go to the zoo to look at animals and animals don't come here to look at us. <laughs> Unless you're watching Planet of the Apes and it's all backwards. <laughs> But again, friends, this is, this is not a message you're going to hear from the world. And this is the irony of the unbelief of the world. Is once you seek to have man autonomous or independent from the Creator, you actually cut the throat of human dignity. Because man's dignity is a derived dignity. In other words, our value is connected to God's value. Our value is connected to the reality that we are image bearers. But if you divorce the reality that humans are made in the image of God, then you just become an animal. You just become an animal on the front end of the evolutionary plane. You are just biology. You're just molecules in motion. And you, you've cut off all human dignity. This is why we can so easily take the life of unborn children. This is why we, we can talk about uh, quote-unquote mercy killing or euthanasia, good death, taking the life of an elderly person. This is why you can, you can look at the news today and right next to the column of, of the latest shooting down the street or the shooting in Youngstown is another article about poor kitty cats who weren't being fed well enough. And it's right there. Now, I am not anti-kitty cat, okay? (laughs) Don't write me hate emails. (laughs) I'm not anti-dog. But friends, you, you get it? You see, once you divorce humanity from God, then all of a sudden, animals are elevated and humanity is devolved in his value to basically being just another animal. And that's even what we're experiencing in our current crisis 
with COVID, with the government, because the government now thinks that they're the ones who give you rights, not as the founders taught, they're given by God as image bearers. And so you're too stupid to decide whether you should put cloth over your mouth. You're too stupid to decide whether you should get an injection. So cover your face and roll up your sleeve. That's the world we live in. Now, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not necessarily anti-max. If that's anti-mass, if that's your personal conviction, but when a tyrannical regime tells you you no longer make the choice here, we make it for you, now you've cut man off from his responsible decision making. This, my friends, is very countercultural. God's crowning creation are human beings made in his image. But again, the tragedy of man is that he tries to make himself in the place of God, to be divorced from God. One of my favorite theological writings is a tiny little children's book called Full Moon Rising. It's only about 10 pages long, but it's about the moon. The moon who is very proud. The moon who boasts of all of its light that it's able to bear until the moon sees the sun. And once the moon sees the sun, the moon realizes that all of his light is a derived light. He's only reflecting the sun. That's why he's a foolish moon before. Friends, it's really a picture of humanity. We puff ourselves up. We think man is the measure of all things. We think man is an autonomous creature who his will be done. And yet, all of man's gifts, graces, innovations, they're because he's made in the image of God. God is the one who grants such light. And friends, we need to humble ourselves before this great God and declare, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is His name. That He's the one to get the glory. He's the one who's to get the adoration. Whatever good that exists in us as image bearers, whatever innovations, whatever technological advances These are ultimately evidences that we were created by Him. But there is one pesky little phrase in verse 6. It says, You you make Him rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under His feet. And you read that and you kind of scratch your chin. Because this psalm, it's a sense in which it looks backwards at the creation, almost looks right past some great event in Genesis chapter 3. Namely, the fall of man, right? God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the creation. And when you get to chapter 3, there's a snake that's telling them what to do. And this is actually what the author of Hebrews picks up on in Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. He says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, and now we know where, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing not subject to him. But, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That's not how it looks now. 
But we do see Him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Did you get it? You see, the the author of Hebrews looks back at Psalm 8 and he says, there's one little phrase here. You've subjected all things to Him. He says, but that's not how we see it now. And we would have to wait for another Adam to come along, another image bearer, namely the Lord Jesus, who would have to experience all the curses of Genesis chapter 3, namely tasting death, so that He might bring many sons to glory, so that that glorious image which man bore in Genesis chapter 2 and 1 could be restored fully to where it ought to be. Friend, this is the grand story of redemption. Are you part of that story? Have you yielded your heart and your life to King Jesus as your King, who's the ruler over you, but also as your priest, the one who died for you? If you have, you have the hope that while things aren't what they ought to be, even in this fallen world, by the way, God's glorious, majestic name still screams out. Isn't that an amazing thing? But we also taste the bitterness of this fallen world. We go to funerals. We observe suffering. And we look forward to the restoration of that image in Christ. So friends, let's go to Him. Let's pray. Lord God, our hearts are full as we have seen Your majestic name put on display both in the cosmos but also in children and even down to humanity and all of this wonder of wonders that You would care for us. You would care for us. What an amazing thing, Lord. I pray that You would help us to shout out the echo of this psalm, the chorus. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. That this would be the song of our heart. That this would be the joy in our step. That we would be able to look at the creation around us with joy and delight that You are the Creator and Your name is put on display. Pray for those who've never begun to see the majesty of Your name. Open their eyes. May they turn to Christ even this morning. Perhaps for the first time be able to sing out O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is Your name. 